Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra, and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust are delighted to welcome our podcast guest. Madeline Ryan is an Australian writer, director and author. Her essays and articles have appeared in SBS, The Daily Telegraph, Sydney Morning Herald, Vice and The New York Times. A young woman gets ready to go to a party. She arrives, feels overwhelmed, leaves and then returns. Minutely attuned to the people who come into her view and alternating between alienation and profound connection, she is hilarious, self-aware and always honest. A Room Called Earth is a brilliant debut from a neurodiverse author that explores a young woman's magical, sensitive and passionate inner world. Madeline is also working on a screen adaptation of A Room Called Earth with her collaborator Hector McKenzie. A Room Called Earth is available to buy now at all good bookstores and available to borrow at Yarra Libraries. Also, just before we begin, towards the end of this podcast, Madeline will do a reading from her book. And there's a couple of swear words in there. So, a quick language warning. Madeline, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. Now, your book, A Room Called Earth, how long has it been out for now? In Australia, maybe three weeks, I think, at this point. And then it came out in America kind of in August last year. So, sort of been staggered a bit. But, yeah, in Australia, a few weeks. So, how would you describe the book to someone? Kind of depends on who I'm talking to, probably. It's a bit different each time. Um, but I guess in the broadest sense, or what I like most about it, is the sense that it's an adventure inside the mind of a dynamic, sensitive, honest, sensual, contradictory woman as she sort of traverses Melbourne in 24 hours. Well, she spends a lot of time in her own space getting ready for a party, and so we kind of get invited into her process with herself, and we get to know her a bit through that and how she cares for herself and prepares to enter into a social environment. Mm. And then she enters into that environment and encounters all kinds of different people at this party on the north side of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, it's a very, It's very much a celebration of Melbourne. So if I was talking to any Melbournians, that would be a focus because it's very much a love letter to the city in lots of ways and to partying in the city and the different kinds of people, I believe. So, yeah, and then she goes to this party and it's kind of a dance between her inner world and then the verbal exchanges that she has with different people. She meets a guy. There's a bit of a love story. But it's very much an adventure inside her mind through these different kind of intimate moments with herself and with others. So, yeah, that's probably the broadest way I'd describe it. The the thing I think which stands out for me mostly about the story is that it's an internal story. So, it's mm. going on in the in the mind of someone and you use short chapters, the summer memories, uh, observances, and thoughts that expand the scope of the novel. Uh, if you looked at the, the the story of the book, it would be quite straightforward to describe. You know, as you were saying, mm. a woman goes to a party, meets people, 
talks to them. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, these are, you've really fleshed it out using these, um, you know, these memories and observances. How did you decide to write the novel in this way? Well, in a sense, when I observed the truth about the present moment that we all experience every moment, yep. I'm really fascinated by how multidimensional it is in mm. terms of what we're experiencing that's right in front of us, what we can sense in our bodies, what we're remembering, what we're feeling, what we're desiring, what we're projecting into the future, what judgments we might be making about the people in front of us or the environment around us. There's so much going on in each moment that is so easy to skim over or to sort of forget about. We live in a culture that's so about kind of speeding up in so many ways and being mm. so inundated with stimulus that that thing of slowing down and really noticing the different facets in any given moment and then what we each bring to each moment and experience I find just endlessly fascinating. Like to be in a conversation with someone and to actually find common ground in some way mm. given the amount of, yeah, experiences, memories, yearnings, assumptions – physical sensations, all sorts of things that are going on. It's like it's such a beautiful, miraculous thing to actually connect kind of through all of that. And so I'm the book is is very much an exploration of of that. And that's why it yeah, it kind of moves between different aspects of who she is in any given moment. But mm. I'm also interested in what she chooses to be aware of, because I think that's very revealing about each of us mm. in any given situation or in any given communication, what we choose to focus on or what we prioritize hmm. is so revealing about who we are. And then, you know, during the book, obviously a kind of secondary love interest character comes in and he then his attention and what he sees in her hmm. kind of gets to open up the reader's idea of who she is again, because he sees things that she wasn't focusing on. And because we're inside her head, you only get her perception. But then when his questions come in or his sort of awareness of her yeah. comes in it opens up our understanding of her too so it's i'm interested in how we also facilitate that for one another this kind of process of opening up and expanding our ideas of ourselves so yeah it's very though it is as you said a very simple sort of story it's got lots of different dimensions that i find very very fascinating if you're interested as a writer in like basically the infinite expanse of someone's brain and thoughts then you have enough material in very little actual real-time action yeah. uh, to write several novels <laughs> so yeah. i'm not sure if plot is the right word because the book does have plot it mm. just looks at plot differently it's not like this happens then this happens then this happens there is that aspect but it's a smaller thing and the um the meat of the book takes place in the in the thought processes of a person and other people as well. Mm. It's a yeah. goldmine, really, you know, that aspect of it. And I also think it's true to life in the sense that our thoughts and what's going on inside us is driving our experiences of our lives. The things that mm. happen, you know, we deal with them, but they're kind of secondary to that experience of ourselves that we wake up with every day you know, and how we feel inside our bodies, how we feel on the earth, how we feel in the room that we wake up in. It's like that's actually the first experience that we have of life and of what it means to exist. And that drives 
every yeah encounter or experience that we have, the things that occur, you know, the plot or the the challenges that come up are sort of born out of that. But I think that that universe is is the center of existence in lots of ways. But that you know, I guess because of that and how multi-dimensional and expansive that is and how different it is person to person maybe we all latch on to you know stories that are very focused on tangible kind of formulaic plots or things that kind of can give comfort in that way because they orient us or something and I mean I like that I think that that has a really important sort of purpose but I'm yeah I'm interested in the other things that drive a narrative or a person to do or think anything yeah Yeah, the book is a reminder. Basically, everyone goes through life and experiences different things uh, throughout their lives and finds themselves in different situations uh, and meets different people and reacts in different ways. But the one thing that no one's ever going to be able to change is the fact that they're inside their own self. Mm. So you're you're always you and you're always, you know, somewhere in between your two eyes I guess and you're experiencing the world in that way and there's a one of my favorite lines in the book is um I feel trapped behind my own face yeah yeah I like that line totally right (laughs) Yeah. yeah have felt that many times before yeah yeah and the moment where she feels that too because she's felt she's kind of had to go along with an exchange where she hasn't been entirely comfortable and hasn't quite known how to be. And it's almost like there's no expression Mm. that could ever capture all those different feelings in that moment or all the different thoughts. Cause there is only so much that the physical world can kind of communicate or our physical bodies can. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I I love that line too. I've certainly felt that way before (laughs) myself as well. (laughs) Now, I wanted to... Sorry, just give me a pause for a second to gather my thoughts. Yeah. got pretty deep there. Yeah. Oh, it's good. (laughs) I read that during the writing of this novel, you were diagnosed with autism. Is Mm. that correct? Yes, that's correct. Tell me about that. Like, what effect did that, do you think, it had on the book? So, you were writing the book while... Mm. And this happened during this diagnosis happened. Yeah. The official diagnosis happened, I think it was about six months into the writing process. Yeah. So they were kind of parallel to each other to an extent, but the world of the book was already quite established. Sure. And it was, I was being guided by it from the very start anyway, and it was, they didn't really cross over in any sense until even, you know, three or four months after the official diagnosis happened. And I went through that whole process with my family and I continued writing and, you know, try to lie, everything just sort of went on as usual. Mm. And then I was sitting outside one day having a cup of tea or coffee or something and kind of looking up at the birds and just like reflecting on it all. And I was like, oh, you know, if this book is inside this woman's mind Mm. and if I'm harnessing the way that my mind processes information different exchanges and how I make sense of certain sensations and how I, you know, analyze different people and experiences. And if I'm kind of bringing all of that to how she functions and her mind, then, you know, does that mean that she's a neurodiverse mind as well? And it was like, well, yeah, like how could she not be? Mm. So it was quite a, a gentle 
collision of things when it finally happened, it dawned on me kind of slowly that that was what was occurring and the fact that I was writing a neurodiver- from inside the mind of a neurodiverse woman, it sort of just was born very calmly and gently as things unfolded and it didn't affect then the writing of her because she already was what she was and I was just being guided by, you know, what felt right to be part of her and what didn't and that sort of just continued but then – yeah, it was in the process of sort of sharing the book with others, that thing of, well, she is neurodiverse, she is autistic, hmm. and I am as well, and it was how much that needed to be a part of kind of presenting the book to the world or not became an interesting dance to do because we live in a time that's so all about celebrating differences, and I think that that's a really powerful and important thing, but it can also kind of limit, I think, the experience that hmm. we can have of one another too when we constantly need to kind of categorise and define who we are and what things are it would be easier for someone to pick up this book and be like well either I'm not interested in autism or Mm. I don't really know what it means or like you know it can have a galvanizing quality but it can also have a dividing quality I think and this book for me is free of so many labels like it doesn't mention autism once it doesn't mention feminism or veganism or colonialism or any of the isms yeah so that sense of expansiveness was always very important to me. So when it was about introducing neurodiversity or autism into mm. it, it was quite a, I mean, the best way or the most diplomatic way I can describe it is is a dance to figure out the best way to balance those different qualities about it. The strength of voice in the book is so strong mm. and it takes you deep into the mindset of the narrator of the story and it also references events that actually happened in Melbourne um, in real life, um, events mm. that young people will remember, including the, the murder of the, the young woman uh, in Princess Park. Yeah. And that makes it really real. It makes the narration of the book really real. And so because of this, I often found myself forgetting it was fiction. It reads like a memoir, mm. which I oh. think is a good thing. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I've certainly... The protagonist definitely drew was drawing on me yeah. and my awareness of this city, my awareness of certain, you know, dynamics with people. Her responses to these things tend to be sort of 10 or 20 times my own or she comes to slightly different conclusions or she's more certain about certain things than yeah. I am. Yeah. Um, and I often talk about how she's more she's more comfortable sitting back in herself when she's in the presence of other people, I tend to talk a lot and yep. sort of fill silences with, you know, talking, whereas she's much better at kind of just being cool and just observing and sitting back. So there are many differences between us. But, yeah, mm. I mean, there are really visceral aspects of Melbourne and my experience of Melbourne, but also, yeah, that point where she reflects on the women that have been murdered mm. in the streets of Melbourne and she's walking alone on a street in Melbourne yep. and it's like – how that experience affects all women consciously and unconsciously, I think, is really palpable universally too. Like around the world, that's a really palpable experience. But it's sort of when those things have happened in the city so recently and so many people are so aware of it and they're in these such central parts of the city, it's really – I guess it's quite traumatising and it would – yeah, affect most women walking those, continuing to walk through those streets or through those parks at night. So it kind of made sense for her to be reflecting on that at that time. And she wanted to be, I mean, it was difficult because it became quite 
heavy and it was, you know, there are all different parts of the book actually that, you know, I found there was this heaviness and her voice though was constantly sort of guiding me toward, well, how can I find the most unifying transcendent aspect of Mm. this traumatizing subject or issue and she's constantly about trying to grasp at that and she almost finds this sense of unity with other women mm. walking the streets through that feeling of fear in a, in a way. It's like she feels this great compassion for her or her sisters who are doing the same thing at the same time or she always led me to this place of real connectedness with others but also she's alone having these moments. It's just really, yeah, it was it was a fascinating journey to go on in that way particularly when it got into some – when she wanted to go into some heavier, more intense subjects in the streets of Melbourne. Um, yeah. you, you talk a, a lot about, you know, the experience for women and how they travel through this world and the different expectations that are put on them and how they're made to feel unsafe in certain ways. Mm. But I do think it's true of everyone. Like when you're walking down a street at night and you can feel someone behind you, it's like we all bring a different a sort of interpretation of what the connotations of that might be. And this is, yeah, a probably a quite focused, you know, look at what a woman might bring to that or what, she, you know, the protagonist does. But, yeah, I've known plenty of men that have their own framework that go with all of that too. And it also depends on the experiences that you've had in the past, you know, what you bring to that and whether you'd even notice. Because if you've got yeah. headphones in and mm. you're thinking about what you're going to cook when you get home, you know, you might there'd be someone who wouldn't even notice that happening. There's also a question of if it's even really happening, Mm. you know, or is she just, you know, kind of imagining that person in the distance or she just sensed them, but they're actually gone by the time she gets to a certain point. So it's like that sense of also being haunted and being feeling like you're being followed, like on a level of conscience, like I'm always interested in, you know, how Shakespeare always has, you know, people knocking on doors and Mm. like that feeling of like, you're being watched and is it like by God or is it by your enemy? Is it by something you're frightened of? Mm. I love all of that stuff and how that plays with our psyche, you know. And so, yeah, it's got those levels to it too that sort of transcend gender or even the experiences you might bring to literally feeling like you're being followed in a street. But it's got these other kind of mythical connotations that I quite like as well. How's the book been received since it's come out? How's it being, you know, experienced by other people? Yeah, I've been quite taken aback by, I think in part because she's constantly searching for that point of transcendence Mm. with each thing she encounters. It seems to be appealing to people that I really didn't necessarily expect, even though I wanted it to and hoped that it could. It's like all different demographics of people have been responding to it warmly and and seeing themselves in it and like you know particularly I think the stuff where she reflects on at being you know an Australian Mm. and trying to relate to the Aboriginal and First Nations people I've had lots of people respond to that being like oh the way that that's articulated yeah and I mean yeah and all different ages of people, so people who've lived through all different decades yeah. on this soil seem to sort of be like, oh, yes, like I haven't read that being articulated and the awkwardness of that, you know, as a white person living here and how to reconcile that. Yeah. Um, so that's had a really beautiful response. But also the sense that it's just really different from 
anything people have read in terms of its structure and how, on the one hand, how narrowly it's focused, but also how kind of expansive that can become. Yeah. Yeah, And how rich that can become seems to sort of surprise people and delight people, which is great. I think some people, I don't know if this happened here or more in America. I remember there being a review or two about finding it jarring moving between her inner world and how like delicious and sort of multifaceted that is and then kind of the blandness of the conversations. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Which, I mean, I love though because on the one hand I think this particular reviewer, I can't remember who it was, but they were kind of like, yeah, that was a bit, you know, stunting and I was thinking, well, that's exactly what I wanted was, you know, it wasn't what I wanted but it was what I found happening was that – I realized how narrow the confines of our conversations with one another can be. Yeah, I think, you know, I, you know, I, I definitely uh, felt that juxtaposition sometimes and it does kind of like land with a thud, but in a, in a really good way because that's what life mm. is like. You're, you're going through and you're thinking about all these things and, you know, all this stuff is happening maybe you're having a really interesting idea or you're thinking about some way that you can do something different mm. and you're off in your world and then you meet someone it's like how's it going good yeah you? yeah good how's the family good you know yeah what you're up to for christmas um blah blah, blah. and yeah and it just becomes yeah. this whole other like parallel dimension to the <laughs> dimension that we actually exist in and i find that just yeah i'm enthralled by that and also that sense that every relationship that we mm. have also has its own language. Yeah. And then there's an acquaintance she runs into. Yep. There's a, a couple of strangers that she talks to and then, you know, an ex-boyfriend. Yeah. And they all exist in these different realities in a way and mm. have their own social confines in terms of how far the conversation can actually go also in the context of the environment, you know, because she kind of runs into an acquaintance who sort of blurts out all this stuff about – her life and this guy that she's kind of seeing, not seeing, and then she sees the guy and sort of bolts, you know, and it's like, yeah, but, you know, if they weren't at the party and they were in a different environment, maybe that would have gone differently, but in this context that's how it, you know, operates. And so I'm interested in those different flavours as well. But, yeah, and and the way in which once she sort of meets this guy that she actually connects with – it's still confined to what's like appropriate to an extent, but as they're getting to know one another, there starts to be a bit more breathing space between them. Also, I find what's not said to be hugely like intoxicating as a, as a kind of device. Like as I was Mm. writing it, I found myself sort of doing spaces between the lines and not doing descriptions of, you know, because usually the conventions sort of be like, you know, she said yeah. and then turned and lowered her head and sort of describing those physical movements that go with what's said. Mm. But I really liked pairing back the words completely and just having it like at face value. And it's interesting because, mm. you know, the theory is that autistic people do take what people others say at face value yeah, and that yeah. the processing of the physical stuff happens separately or later or is kind of a different part of the brain. It's like a compartmentalized experience. Yeah. So that's also operating in that choice as well. But, yeah, I found myself being really interested in the blank parts of the page where it's like, Mm. yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then like imagining, well, what does that, yeah, actually mean? (laughs) You know, because it's believable. It feels natural to what would be in a conversation, but there's something going on in the blankness of the page that's like 
I talked about it with the Australian editor quite a bit who I worked with, this kind of intuitive reading experience that Mm. can happen. Or, you know, people are just like, what's going on there? That was boring. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, who wants to read that in, you know, dialogue? Is that engaging literature really? But I guess it just depends on the reader and what they bring to it. Yeah. I mean, I think also the setting that it's, you know, it's at a party. The conversations are are party conversations Mm. in a lot of ways. So, you know, people are talking – they're either having wanting to have like a pretty superficial kind of catch up or they're wanting to express something about themselves through, you know, what they're saying. Or some people are just trying to have like a kind of a slightly disengaged, ironic conversation <laughs> um, uh, because yeah. that's how people, especially, I guess, people of the last kind of 20 or 30 years mm. talk. And if someone's not keen to be disengaged and ironic and they want to be a bit more true and less clever mm. or say what they actually mean instead of putting on a front, yeah. then they're, they're confronted by someone who's being honest. Mm. That's I love all of that. I find that so interesting and the different choices we make about how to operate in different environments and in the presence of different people. Like that same person who with one person who they're trying to impress and they're nervous around goes into that ironic, like, jokery space. Next minute we'll be talking to a closer friend of theirs and be like, oh, you know, I'm exhausted. I'm thinking about going home. Like, Mm. I'm really wrecked. I mean, I did break up with so-and-so a minute ago and so I'm just – think I'm reeling from that. It's like you can have all these different things from the one person in one night too. Yeah. Which I think she demonstrates too, like being inside her mind and seeing what each encounter brings out in her is really interesting. Yeah. But I guess then there are those people who just stick to the same formula with everybody in one night. You know, I probably relate to that a bit. But, yeah, Yeah. it's, it's a very individual thing too. How did you decide on the title of the book? Yeah, the title was an interesting thing. So I had started writing already. Mm. And so the first day of my period is has been for the past mm. few years excruciatingly painful. Yeah. One morning it was really bad. Like I think it's actually when I look back probably the worst morning I've ever had yeah. in terms of pain because I came off the hormonal birth control pill like – Oh, it must be six years ago now. And yeah. ever since then, just first day, always painful. Yeah. And this was, yeah, probably hands down the worst day. I'd had a bath. I'd done, you know, taken all the magnesium. I was mm. trying to unwind. I was, you know, and I went outside and I was kind of delirious. Mm. And I just had a bath and I went outside and I lay on the grass and kind of was, I think I was sweating like profusely and was just in this agony. And I kind of looked up at the sky and was like, I'm in a room. Like, even though I'm outside, I'm I'm just in a room. Mm. Like, how is this any different from being inside my house? Like, what? And then it was this sort of trippy experience mm. of, like, the earth is a room. And then I was like, a room called earth. And I was like, and then my mind is like this room and the parameters of this room, which are unknown, but so are the – the walls of my mind and it was just like this very you know and I'd like to say that the pain stopped at that point but I don't think it did (laughs) that didn't immediately kind of lift the pain I was in although it probably helped I think I went to sleep shortly after that but then I knew that it was the title Mm. but it kind of took a little bit of time I remember for the story to fully catch up 
it definitely became like an anchor of each thing that then emerged in the writing and reflecting on what I'd already written about that thing of like, yeah, well, the walls of our mind, the walls of her mind, the Mm. parameters of our existence and our understanding of things, but also that literal physical experience of being on the earth and it kind of feeling like a room, Mm. you know, there's the sky, there's the buildings, there's the trees, there's the ground, and every day it's that, it kind of has a roomy quality. (laughs) I guess if you're looking at it that way, that's a really it's a really good way to look at it. Further yeah. means we have to take care of where we live. Exactly. Yeah. And that's also how she relates to her own body mm-hmm. and each relationship becomes its own room. Yeah. Each thought becomes its own room. It's like there's so many levels at which that kind of functions as a reality of our lives that yeah, it just kind of blossomed as I kept working on it. And yeah. so yeah, the title seems to encompass all those different levels in the story. I'd also like to mention the cover of the book. It's really cool. <gasps> Yay, I know. I love that cover so much. It's like a treasure chest. Yeah, and uh, it looks really good on the library shelf as well. Excellent. Yeah, we've got some copies at Yarra Libraries. Who designed the cover? Alison did. Alison Colpoise designed the cover. She's, she did an amazing job. I remember when Marika, the publisher, sort of said to me, you know, oh, Alison is seeing like a, a cat on a – or pork chop, which is the name of the character yep. in the book. The cat, you know, pork chop on a plinth. And I was like, oh, yes. That way that cats are just like this all-knowing, all-seeing eye. Mm. You know, it's like, yes. Like that's so, you know, hurt the, the protagonist's like spirit animal as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it's also a literal character in the story. And then it just kept expanding from there. And, the yeah, and obviously the border with all the different kind of elements and mm. different flavours and textures and the gold and the, yeah. I mean, I could talk about the cover endlessly. She did such a beautiful job. Mm. As a writer, are you a writer that reads while writing or do you stop reading and just concentrate on writing? I grew up in a house with journalists so lots of books, lots of magazines, mm-hmm. um, and I also studied, you know, literature and creative writing at uni. Mm. I was always around a lot of fiction and all kinds of things growing up. But then, when I kind of got to like twenty twenty one, I started to feel like restless. I didn't really know why, and I was really drawn into self help, spirituality, yeah. and psychology books and stuff. And basically, yeah. for the last like ten years, that's been predominantly what I've been reading sure and I think it was because I kind of needed to find my own voice like Mm. I'm an incredible sort of mimic and I it it would be easy for me to read a fiction and then Mm -hmm. just copy it so I um without knowing that I was initially headed toward writing a book Mm. even though I grew up around writing and my parents were writers and I was journaling constantly and even writing the occasional article as a teenager and all kinds of things and all sorts of signs were there that I was headed toward writing. Mm. And and even this, like I instinctively kind of moved away from a lot of fiction because I think this needed to be born, like a kind of voice that I could hear mm. very clearly inside me that is no doubt influenced by lots of different things, but it wasn't just – it wasn't at the forefront of my mind that kind of being dictated to – I can definitely – there are different influences. But, yeah, I would sort of – some books were fine and safe to read, but yeah. they were never fiction. Yeah, they were never fiction books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've, um, I've, I've had a few different responses to questions like that. There was one uh, author who said he never reads while he writes mm. because he gets intimidated. 
because he reckons his his first drafts are always so bad. <laughs> And he's reading something which has been refined over five years or whatever. Yeah, totally. And so that's intimidating and it makes him feel like he's not very good. Yeah, and that thing of yeah. like, oh, this book is so sure of itself yeah. and yet I'm not even close to that yet. And this book isn't <laughs> like, what am I doing? Yeah, I can't even – that's a whole other thing I hadn't even thought about beyond yeah. the mimicking that I just don't yeah. – it's just better to keep it like an embryo in the dark and protect it and, you know, honour it. And don't let too many influences in, maybe. Although other people might feed off that. Like, I can imagine there'd be writers who would find it really stimulating to sort of read different voices and get different influences. But, yeah, I'm certainly not one of those while I'm writing. Yeah. Thinking about your history of reading, were there any kind of books that, you know, when you were reading or growing up, which really just knocked you back and hit you out of the park and were really influential on you? Yeah, heaps. I mean... Anything also from, like, children's books and fairy tales yep. through to, like, you know, um, Catcher in the Rye when I was, like, 13 yep. was, like, massive to me. Yeah. And then the philosophy of Andy Warhol was yep. a huge one. And then Jane Austen, like, Emma, like, all these kind of big heavyweight classic ones. But mm. you can also see those probably a little bit in different ways in the book on some level, even though I haven't read them in, like, 10 or you know, 15 years, those had a huge impact op- upon me. Sleeping Beauty and, mm. like, The Secret Garden was a massive one. Yep. And that yeah, I can yeah. actually really vividly see in this book mm. too, like the sense of using beauty and things that are beautiful and obviously her environment and where she lives in the book has this kind of fable-like, fairy tale like quality to it in its beauty and its sadness. Mm. And I think that that probably comes from my love of fairy tales and the way that often these kind of moral – fables unfold in these really epic like you know aristocratic kind of environments i find just like divine because you know (laughs) if you're going to tell me something difficult like at least make it beautiful you know yeah and so yeah that was that's an influence too no doubt what would you like people to take from this book when they read it yeah so the story has a very individual sort of subjective nature to it but I guess I see the individual experience as a universal experience Mm. so that sense of coming to the end of it and really feeling like wow you know with all of my mess with all of my the experiences that I've been through with all of the things that I want for myself with all the relationships I've had and had to let go of like I'm connected to everybody else on this planet Mm -hmm. because we're all going through that and we all belong because of that and kind of to find a sense of belonging through that individual sort of nature of the story and of our experience I think there's an incredible opportunity to feel very connected to everything around us and to everyone around us through embracing that it's kind of like a nice paradox so if people could feel a sense of belonging when they get to the end of it Mm. that would mean you know the world to me Mm. Fantastic. Yay. (laughs) Well, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. (laughs) Cool. Um, Do you want to do a reading before you go? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, how about we – do you want to do Chapter 7? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I've ever read that one out. I'll definitely paint my nails before leaving the house tonight, and I actually think that a pearly polish would go quite well with my outfit. I even have one called Champagne Frost, which I suspect Nana would approve of because my heart swells when I think about it. That's the best way to know anything, although no one ever tells you that. 
No one ever says, just use the expansive feeling in your chest to understand what's true and what you want and where to go and what really matters, because they're too busy forcing you to learn from books that they're choosing and pointing at whiteboards that they're writing on and encouraging you to ask questions from curriculums that they've set. Which is why I'm very proud to announce that all of the books in my possession are ones that I've chosen and that have chosen me. They weren't recommended to me by anyone. No school teacher or university lecturer told me to write essays on their core themes, and no bestseller list said they were ones to watch, and no girlfriend in a book group told me it changed her life. I've been drawn to each one, and they've been drawn to me. Right now, Lisa Belia's Aboriginal country is beside my bed. She was an activist, artist, photographer, poet, comedian, playwright, broadcaster, and Gurnapal woman of the Nunakal people of Minjirabar. There's a street on the north side of Melbourne called Warrior Woman Lane, which is named after a line in one of her poems. It's actually more like an alleyway than a laneway, although that doesn't diminish its significance. Melbourne is filled with significant alleyways. So, before I fall asleep each night, Lisa Belia tells me about the history of this land and her people. I want to do everything that I can to honour them and their history because, unlike New Zealand, America and Canada, Australia has no treaty with its Indigenous population. They weren't even legally recognised citizens until 1967. I always feel intimidated when I cross paths with them. I don't know how to build a bridge between who I am and who they are. Whenever I see an Aboriginal person, I immediately feel out of place and ridiculous. It seems so absurd that I'm here. Surely I'm meant to be flouncing about somewhere tepid in the Northern Hemisphere making daisy chains and milking cows. It's confusing. I mean, if I don't know how to relate to Australia's Indigenous people, and I can't really make sense of why I'm here with them, I don't really know what being an Australian means. Like, if I can't fathom the link between who I am and who they are, and why we're all here together, there must be something broken about the relationship that I have with who I am and where I'm from. Which would make sense, because Australia is a broken country. Unresolved guilt and trauma and indebtedness to the Crown seem to define the very little history that we have. Aboriginal people possess a much longer and much more intimate relationship with this land. We were their apocalypse. They had been living on this continent for more than 60,000 years and all of a sudden, and as of a minute ago, proportionally, we turned them into the most incarcerated people on the planet. And only just recently did we deem it inappropriate to, like, hunt them at random. An American comedian once came here and did a tour and got into trouble for making jokes about how it was illegal to hunt Indigenous Australians right up until the 1920s. I've always wondered if people were upset with him because he was joking about something so malevolent and fucked up, or because he was bringing up a subject that we're so deeply ashamed of. Maybe both. I really want to be Australian, I just don't know how. A few months ago I watched a show about Aboriginal land rights, and one of the elders from a community in Queensland stood up and said that the land owns us, all of us, not the other way around. So perhaps at the end of a stinking hot day, what makes me Australian is the fact that I took my first steps on its ground. My body is fueled by crops grown on its soil. My skin sweats in its humidity, and its waters hydrate and cleanse me. I wouldn't last two minutes without its air. 
I sleep under its stars every night, and I rub its aloe vera on my mozzie bites, and I coat my hair in masks made from its oils. Because even if my hair cannot be tamed under any circumstances, the degree to which it's nourished can be, and my tresses feel like fucking satin now. That was Madeline Ryan, author of A Room Called Earth. The book is available to buy now at all good bookstores and available to borrow at Yarra Libraries. Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust is proud to support the Libraries Change Lives initiative, which highlights how Victorian public libraries change lives by offering communities a place to learn, create and belong. This podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust as part of Fitzroy Writers Festival 2021. The Ewing Trust is a fund that allows special and unique programming at Fitzroy Library and promotes libraries, literature and a lifelong love of learning in Fitzroy. There are five libraries within the city of Yarra, Carlton, Richmond, Collingwood, Fitzroy and Bargunga Nunjin, North Fitzroy. These libraries provide free access to collections, programs and events to residents and visitors to Yarra. Please like, share and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast. Thank you to the Ewing Trust for making this podcast possible.